Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, Senior Pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And today I am joined by my guest, Rosaria. Uh, Rosaria? Rosaria? No, Rosaria. That's you what had I it thought. Right. That's what, it's that's the what I was saying. A. Rosaria. You could do that too. Yes, okay, yes. Good. And that would, that would, then I think you were my grandmother. But anyway. Oh, okay, well, I don't want to be that. <laughs> Uh, we don't want gender confusion on this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Rosaria Butterfield, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age is the book that we're going to talk about. Hopefully, most of our listeners know of Rosaria and some of her other books, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Openness Unhindered, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She's an author, pastor's wife, homeschool mother, former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse. We may talk about that. And I forgot about this. You have your PhD from the Ohio State University. That's right. Don't forget that article adjective. They may what? have dropped the article adjective, actually, since I graduated the, in the Dark Ages. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, they still haven't. In fact, they were trying to, uh, a few years ago, they tried to trademark the the. Okay, <laughs> they they yes. couldn't do it. But, they, but Crossway, <laughs> who's published this wonderful book, actually, it just says Ohio State University. So there are some Buckeyes that are going to want... The mm. the Rosaria. Oh, I wish that's the only controversy about this book that we could talk about. Uh, yes, well, we won't talk <laughs> about that one. We will get into many others, but let's start here. And I don't think you get tired of this question, but you're asked it often. But it gives you an opportunity to talk about the Lord's grace in your life. Uh, probably most of the people listening know something about you, but in case there's someone who's who doesn't, it would be important right. before we jump into this book. Tell us how did you become a Christian. Yeah, that is an important question, and I never tire of the Lord's grace in my life. Um, uh, when I was a professor uh, of English and Women's Studies, and uh, I was at Syracuse University, and I was actually um, recruited, hired, mentored, and then tenured in some ways to make homosexuality look wholesome. And unfortunately, I actually pulled it off. So I was uh, a lesbian feminist activist. I say that because I wasn't just the quiet lesbian next door trying to mind her own business. I genuinely was trying to change the world. Um, uh, you know, what is it? Proverbs 23, 7, how a man thinketh in his heart, so he uh -huh. is. Uh, I, I, I was all in. And I believed that in the morality of gay and lesbian lives and in the, uh, the various ways that feminism was, was truly good for the world, um, as, as well as good for me. And um, after my tenure book was, was written, and, you know, totally set at New York University Press, I started writing the book that was on my heart. And it was really just a question, why do Christians hate gay people? Why, why you know, what, what is it? Like, why, why can't people like you just, you know, appreciate uh, the person I used to and be? And why did and, you even think about Christians? Had you had that in your background or encountered I, Christians? Why make that the... <laughs> The, the, the lodestar of your objection. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a political activist. I testified before New York's legislatures, and I, I wrote the first policy at the university for domestic partnerships, which mm -hmm. then became part of the the, you know, part of the bulwark of the, of the um, uh, gay rights, uh, you know, activist, uh, you know, gay marriage activism, you know, decades later. So I had had lots of interfaces with Christians okay. and it always seemed that we were talking past each other. It always seemed to me like, um, you know, I was saying, here are logical arguments in a world that isn't Christian. And you all were saying, but I think the whole world is Christian. And I thought, can't, you know, 
does everybody have ADHD? You know, can, right. can't you stay focused? You know, so I really and but I but I also genuinely wanted to know why you all thought what you thought. So I had a little stickum on my desk that said I'd rather be um, uh, wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, I've always kind of lived that out. I also had interfaced with a number of Christians around policy issues, and I was kind of hankering to talk to you all. I just wanted to sit down, have dinner, listen to you. And, you know, I also have never wanted to make straw men in my books and my articles out of my opponents. So I, it's important to me to hear the other side well enough that I, you know, understand it. So, so that, that was why, that's why Christians were on my, my uh, radar. And in the process, I met a pastor, uh, Ken Smith. He's still alive. I talked to him fairly, you know, recently and 96 years old, still very sharp, um, still rebukes me for various things. Um, (laughs) And he and his wife, Floy, uh, became, uh, I learned that they were my neighbors and they were willing to really, they were willing to just open up these scriptures and tell me why they thought what they thought. And so... The, the really short story is after, you know, reading the Bible through seven times under Ken Smith's authority. I wasn't just, you know, reading the message mm-hmm. and letting people know what I thought about it. It wasn't right. that. It was I was trying to read it in the way that they were reading it so I could understand um, and probably eating 500 meals at their house. And just, uh, you wow. know, I came to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I learned that repentance unto life was my threshold to God and was was liberty, and that's when life really got messy for me. That, like that's when that's when my life fell apart. <laughs> you know, that's I mean, right. Christianity way. doesn't always make your life come together. Oh, at least no. not initially. Oh, not not for me. I mean, can you imagine being the you know the faithful tenured queer theory prof at Syracuse, and now you're a Christian and. I've got all these graduate students who are hoping I'm still going to be working with them in queer theory. And I'm saying, well, I'm not really teaching that anymore. I'm, I'm teaching Christian hermeneutics. And, you know, I, I mean, it, 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 it and, and also, you know, there were personal questions. How's the Lord going to work with my, at that point, very persistent lesbian desires? Like what, how does a woman like me, who I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus Christ, uh, you know, is in fact, uh, our resurrected Savior, and that the resurrection of Jesus is true, whether I believe it or not. So that's why I'm a Christian. But how do I fit into this paradigm? So those are big questions and hard questions. And the Lord very faithfully worked all of it out. I don't have everything figured out, but right. um, very grateful to God for salvation and for the forgiveness of sin and for the liberty that is in Christ and for my husband, my children, my grandchild, all of that. Uh, have you heard from people over the years if, as you've shared that that story? And just a little plug here: Rosaria is going to be at the Cross Conference. Uh, I'll be there. Others will be there. It's a it's a missions aimed conference for eighteen to twenty five year olds. You can check it out. But uh, there'll be a main session, which will be me and Rosaria having a, a more far reaching conversation, not just about this book, but about her life. So there's lots of questions I want to ask you. I'll save most of those for that time. But I just wonder, as you've shared that story many times over the years, have you had people say to you, "Well, Rosaria, I doubt you were really a lesbian." Absolutely. Right. And what that, do you say to them? You probably were just dabbling and right. you can't, you didn't really come out of that thing into this new thing. People don't really right. change like that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I'll be the first to say that that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done was to leave 
my lesbian partner and join a church and try to go to battle against a sin that felt like who I was. And so if the Lord gave me a lighter sentence than he's given other people, it's because he knows I'm a very weak woman. So I, I do not, you know, I mean, it was Jane Austen who said, uh, it, you know, in sarcasm about the women writers of her day, well, you know, my sore throat hurts more than everybody else's. You know, I, <laughs> I, if, if, if I had a lighter sore throat than everybody else, it's because I needed it. Um, um, uh, so I, that's what I would say. I would say that it, it, how God um, liberates you from the entanglements of Satan, that's quite a mystery. I would also say that there's something generational about this that I would like to say. I'm 61 years old. When I came out as a lesbian, I was a late bloomer, right? I was considered a late, you know, everybody, I just, you know, I went to Catholic school. I didn't date anybody. I wasn't interested in anybody. I've, I was just never really interested in in men at all. Um, and uh, in college, men were interested in me. And so I was, I dated a number of men. I was dating men, uh, you know, throughout college. And then at the same time, falling in love with women, which was, you know, a little bit awkward. That can put a damper on a relationship kind of quickly. Uh-huh. Um, but I didn't really, this was not, it wasn't a world that was given over to the celebration of all things homosexual. So I didn't really have language for who I was. Um, when I came out as a lesbian, all my friends were like, yeah, we knew it. I'm like, okay. Um, and um, the, I would say the organizing paradigm for me was something that Adrian Rich, who was a lesbian poet and very significant to my generation, mm-hmm. uh, she had an article called Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence. So I saw my former heterosexuality as a kind of social compulsion and my lesbianism as a kind of freedom um, and authenticity. Um, Having said that, I would have never said born this way because I was a feminist and I did not want to get anywhere close to the pathology of of homosexuality. I, I, I was not sick. I, I, I would very, you know, was happy to tell you I chose this. Um, and so that was part of the language. All of this is part of the language of Freud, though. And that's what we need to realize, that in the 19th century, the, uh, the, the, in some ways, the invention of a new category of personhood called uh, homosexual orientation, you know, that was the first time in the history of the world that anyone would say, this is who I am right. rather than how I feel. And so we're all downstream from that. But no, I mean, I, I, um, I yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to go to, I, I would never argue with somebody about our personal feelings and has it been harder for other people? I would say, for example, I think it's probably harder for a lot of men mm-hmm. who have practiced uh, homosexuality than it is for women. I, I, now, you know, I'm going to get probably, this will be, might be the first controversial thing I've said on your podcast, not the last, but, you know, because for the most part, women's sexuality is responsive and not initiative. So I think, I think it is harder. I think there are, there are many uh, complexities to the way that sin makes more work for us. But here's what I would not want for people to have. Um, I am 61 years old. I am biblically married. I have been married to my faithful husband and pastor for almost as long as I have been a Christian. That has given me such um, such a liberty to grow in Christ that my single friends mm. who struggle with homosexuality have not had. Uh, so in some ways, you might even ask the question, how could I not be mm. more 
sanctified than I am right now. Yeah. So I... No, that's, that's a wonderful I, answer. And before we jump into the book, just uh, I would hate for me, I would hate to forget this by the end of the podcast. So I want to ask <laughs> you this now, because maybe there's somebody listening here who is mired in sexual sin. We could label it homosexual or it might be heterosexual. What would you say to the person listening or it might be a loved one they're praying for? They feel like either I cannot really change or two, I cannot really be forgiven. What do you right, say absolutely. to the person with sexual sin who is believed? That's that that gets to the lies, but but will right. It, it's uh, indirectly. What do you say right. to those two I, beliefs? Absolutely. Well, to the person who's struggling, I would say that one drop of Christ's blood is sufficient to forgive us mm. from our sins completely. And if you um, you re- you repent of your sin and and lay hold, cling to Christ, um, you are getting more than one drop of his blood. Mm. And you are getting the resurrected Christ, which means that as you struggle, and everyone does, you know, as you cry out the way Paul did, why do I do what I don't want to do? It's the law of sin in me. You are not only clinging to Christ, but Christ is clinging to you. And Thomas Goodwin has the best word picture of that. We are all born chained to Adam. And once we are justified by God, we are now chained to Christ. And just in the same way that you couldn't move your chain to Christ, you can't change your chain from Christ. And then our job is to really be um, to be to tie in in the covenant of church membership with a the godly church, and to grow in Christ. And to remember that that proverb I think I started with: "How a man thinketh in his heart, so he is." the battle is in the mind as well as the body and as well as the body Mm. memories. But it's extremely important, especially in this particular culture, if your struggle is homosexual sin, you need to realize how much Satan is all over this. Um, Homosexuality is the reigning idol of our day. Mm -hmm. Um, You probably feel like you're being torn apart by wild horses. So don't try to find the middle road. That's right. Run deeply into the church. Have them hide you and protect you. And don't feel like you need to be a narrator of all things, how to help other people. You need to just shore up in the word of God. Now, if you are the mother of someone who is still struggling or the grandmother, mm-hmm. and those in some ways are the my audience for the book. It might not come across, but um, those were the people that prompted me to write this book. You need to learn how to stay connected to your loved one without becoming indoctrinated. And in some ways, the same advice is for you. You can't find that there is no middle road. That road got washed away. Uh, it's, yep. And we can talk about how that road got washed away. Uh-huh. You need to go to the center of the of the church. You need to go to a church that is faithful, and um, and uh, and and you need to know that that um, the Lord hears your prayers, mm-hmm. and you are you're dealing with not just anybody, but a prayed for child. And that's from those of us who are covenantalists. That's a different category. That's right. So pray Absolutely. with hope. Uh, that's a great segue to talk about the book. So we're talking about Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age uh, by Crossway. Thankful for Crossway. I do want to mention Crossway is one of the sponsors of LBE. And uh, a new book just to also commend by David Gibson, 
the, there it is, if you're watching, the Lord of Psalm 23, Jesus, our shepherd, companion, and host, forward by Sinclair Ferguson. David is is uh, a friend and a wonderful pastor in Scotland, and he's written this book. It's lovely in its design and content, so check that out from Crossway on Psalm 23. I want to talk about your audience. You've already mentioned that, and you've alluded to that likely this is to be a controversial book, and as much well, both. Both content, and I'm sure there will be people who say tone. So I've had the I had the privilege of writing the foreword, and if I can read, if I can quote myself for a moment, <laughs> th- uh, so the book you are holding, I write, is so important. Make no mistake, this courageous book is bracing, meaning readers will have to brace themselves. You won't agree with every sentence, but... It is hard to imagine anyone who shouldn't listen to what Rosaria has to say. Strike that, not what Rosaria has to say, but what God has said that Rosaria knows we need to hear. Rosaria Butterfield is a friend of mine, and she is eager to speak to you as a friend too, if you will let her. She's smart, caring, self-deprecating. You didn't want to hear all that. And here's one thing I hope you learn to love. In a world awash in soft heads and brittle hearts, Rosaria isn't afraid to tell you what she really thinks. May her tribe increase. So one of the the most important sentences, I think, is actually the very first sentence in the preface. You say, this book is for Christians, especially Christian women, who aren't ashamed of the Bible and its teachings, or who are and want to change. I, I could imagine someone writing a book like this as an apologetic book, and they're speaking, first of all, to those who are struggling with these sins— an evangelistic book, a cultural, a theological retrieval book. So there's lots of different ways. And I think some people who may criticize it may have in mind, you should have written a book that I could give to my very hurt, difficult child who needs, you know, to, well, there's that Rosaria who would love to sit across the table with you at a meal. And this is a a different audience. Why did you address the book to those persons, and why did you write it in the way you did? Those are great questions. First of all, um, I addressed it to moms and grandmas because Mm. those are the people who stop me at Costco, show up at my house, show up at my church, write to my website, and um, they are totally befuddled Mm. by how Christians became bigots, how the Word of God became harmful, how 78 genders popped up in a world that only has 26 letters of the alphabet to represent them, and also how um, uh, just not, you know, how a biblical world and life view became understood as hatred, and um, why we went from talking about consenting adults and leaving them alone to all of this programming targeting children. Uh, dare I say, how we went from allies to groomers. Mm -hmm. And these moms also wanted to know, and I've talked to them, or I've Zoomed with them, or however we have been able to communicate. Um, uh, You know, one grandma said, do I really have a trans child, my grandson, or an abused one? Mm -hmm. Because my lesbian daughter is now non-binary and thinks she needs to change my grandson's name, put him in 
tucking underwear. If you don't know what that is, I can, you know, and um, raise him as a girl to save the world from toxic masculinity. And we live in, and I won't name the state. And that's not even an exaggeration. You, no, you, you're no. You're not speaking in hyperbole. That really, not, I, those words, those things are yes, happening all the time. Those things are happening. These yeah. are the conversations. I also um, speak at school board meetings, Durham County school board meetings, on the subject of transgenderism and parental rights. And um, that is like going to a psych ward on the night of a full moon. And I'm not kidding. And I will often say to people, now look, I'm a former gay rights activist. If you want me to help you make your argument, I will. But when you just go up to the microphone and scream, and I'm not kidding you, the things that you see on YouTube are actually happening. And so these moms and grandmas are writing to me and saying, what happened? And it made me realize and specifically what they're saying is, I'm at a church, the pastor just says, let's major on the majors, but we can't agree about what the majors are. So if Christ is not divided, why is the church divided? And so the book itself really sought to answer those questions, strengthen that community. And I came up with three reasons and five lies. And the reason for my tone is simple. These are not women who are preacher chick wannabes, just as I'm not. These are not women who want to write book reviews on these books. These are women who, like me, I get up in the morning, and if my grandson was here, there are lots of pages on the homeschool table with one line through them, and I throw them in the garbage. You know what? He's a great artist, but if you leave it on the homeschool table in the morning <laughs> and it's Monday, it goes in the garbage. And so as harsh as this might sound, there's a lot of books out there that are just garbage. And I just want to give moms and grandmas like myself the permission to continue doing what we're doing, throwing garbage in the garbage so we can get on with life. Yeah. So three reasons, five lies. So we're going to get to those reasons in, in, in just a moment. You you say, just continue with this theme, you say that this book is uh, the necessity of godly confrontation. and And I think you do that very well. It is a confrontation, but I, I think you're true to your own, what you set out. It's not your values, it's what God tells us. Godly confrontation does not include mocking derision. It allows Christians to seek the truth, and it might seem naive or overly simple, but is actually an act of respect. And 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 that, I think, is sorely missing. We have lots of confrontation, especially online, lots of mocking derision, lots of owning the libs or whatever the the opposite is with the conservatives. Uh, There's lots of that, but actual godly confrontation. And I hope people in this book and on this podcast, Rosaria, can really hear your heart behind it, because you are writing as a sister in Christ, as a mother, as a grandmother. And as you're talking, it's not just a book for women by any means, but you do have in your mind, and you say some things that uh, perhaps will be hard for some women to hear. And it's not that men don't run afoul of these faults either, but for example, you say, I'm paraphrasing, it's it's, uh, toward the front of the book, you you talk about, uh, instead of following, you know, almost Christian bloggers who tweet about this stuff, you know, go to your Bible, go to your church. And then at the end, uh, I think you talk about don't, women, sisters, don't use the online world as an opportunity to air your grievances. 
Now, uh, yes, men can make these mistakes as well, but since you're addressing women, what is it? What, what's the what's the draw that I think all of us recognize this is a danger? The online world becomes, you know, the sisters of perpetual grievance, and it's just the way that, it's the way you get accolades, it's the way that you get allies, and then how many women do fall prey, I like your phrase, almost Christian. Uh, it, it's a sort of veneer of Christianity, the mommy blogger world, and there's a, there's a lot of good ones out there, but there's some real snakes. That's not too strong a word. What have you seen, and why do you feel so compelled to warn against these things? Right, right. So first of all, I'm an older woman writing this book, I, and, and I'm not on social media because I would be disqualified in the first three hours. I don't have <laughs> the self-control to, to do this. So, so I, I, you know, you might say, well, I don't know that you're a good, uh, you know, but here's what I would say. Um, and I'm not going to name, I, I sometimes do name names when I need to name names, but I'm not going to name names on this one, although I think you, you'll, you'll track with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a woman long enough, and I was an advocate of feminism long enough to know that when women play hardball, in the same way men do, they get chewed up, spit out, and they're not forgiven. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you go out on what you want to say. This book might be, you know, my swan song in some ways. I, I'm willing to put that out there. But don't let it be on something stupid. Okay, so know that if you're going to play hardball, young woman, for every problem that you see in the Twitter world, um, you will not have a playing field the way that the men who uh, do the very same thing that you do. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm acknowledging this book might be the last just for that reason. And I'm, I'm, I'm OK with that. But be careful. Be careful because the world does not want to hear strident, angry women, even if Twitter has given you um, a, a, a space, as they would say, for this kind of, and right. I think it's exhibitionism. Right. Do you think it's true? Do you think, and I'm curious, really, uh, that these two statements are true? One, that when, when, when you say, you know, go with all the kind of strength and vigor and attack dog as, as a man would do in the online world, number one, that they do get treated you know, e- even more poorly, and number two, that women also handle it in a different way or don't I mean I do think you know yes. there's plenty of men who who handle it in ungodly ways also but there is a, there are differences between men and women and I think Absolutely. arguing like men doesn't help women in either respect so uh, agree or disagree Agreed. with those two thoughts now, yeah. I agree I, I agree entirely and I would say that's actually why you're seeing such an uptick in the social contagion part of transgenderism mm. a young, among young women. Women have more flexible ego boundaries and they are less likely to be to, to, to find their foothold in, um, in a world where everybody is screaming at it. them. Yeah. So uh, let's get into these five lies. We could do an episode on each one and we'll just try to walk through them quickly and see, hopefully, to get to some of these other, you know, you have great things to say at the end about the difference between acceptance and affirmation. So there's lots of stuff I want to get in here. But five lies. Number one, homosexuality is normal. Uh, You talked about Freud, and it is downstream from Freud. I've said before, uh, you know, when we allow the world 
to give us the words to use, we don't realize it. So it's the same. It's the same thing. Transgender, cisgender. As soon as you start saying trans and cisgender, you've given away a whole lot more than you realize. You've just Im- implicitly or explicitly put in your mind and other people's minds. Well, there's two different ways of being. They're equally, and then it's. Well, why are you cis instead of trans? Or in this case, why are you heterosexual instead of homosexual? So what do you mean, Rosaria, that we've believed the lie that homosexuality is normal? Right. Well, we um, when you unhinge the gospel from the creation ordinance, you create a false gospel. Now, you know, you can have many virtuous pagans in this world, as uh, Dante, you know, uh-huh. Uh, describes. Unfortunately, they're all in the inferno part of the book and not, you know, the other part. So, yeah, right. so I mean, let's be clear, um, uh, you know, that's not the comedy part that, that the divine pagans go in. So, so, um, so the normalization of homosexuality came about through a couple of powerful social forces. One is exactly what you describe, well-meaning evangelicals mm. ceding or yielding the moral language to the left you know, using the left's language, sexual minority, cisgender, da, da, da. And as soon as you do that, you no longer have the moral language of the Bible. That's right. And the Bible has a moral language. And if you don't use that, then you're actually condemning people to hell. You are not proclaiming a gospel. There is no gospel of, the, of cisgenderism. There is no gay Christianity. So one of the things that the, the, the normalization of homosexuality did Uh, or does, is it demands you cede the moral language to the left. It demands you accept the moral language of the Obergefell decision. And when I say the Obergefell decision, I don't just mean the Supreme Court case in 2015, but all of the arguments that surrounded it. One of the biggest arguments that surrounded uh, the Obergefell decision, which uh, legalized gay marriage in all 50 states, was um, the idea that the only reason we haven't done this before is animus. The only reason we haven't had gay marriage for you know thousands of years is because straight people hate gay people and there's this internalized homophobia and so rolled into the Obergefell decision was the dignitary harm clause which set redefined harm and it said you are hurting people who call themselves gay if you deny their identity and that's why people are losing jobs over transgender mm-hmm. pronouns so Um, One of the things we've never seen before until right now, the normalization of homosexuality, we've never said Christians don't throw people away. We understand that sin comes in every form. It grabs you by the throat. I'm the last person on planet Earth to not tell you I can understand that. But this is the first time in the history that the anomaly has normed the norm. Mm-hmm. And so what the normalization of homosexuality has done is it's led people to believe that this is who you are rather than how you feel because of the fall of man. It also has created a false gospel that you see in Revoice, in gay Christianity, and I talk about side A and side B, and all of that might be just too deep in the weeds for this conversation. But basically what I'm saying is that um, we have a lot of virtuous pagans, as Dante would Mm -hmm. say, running around in the evangelical church. And that makes it extremely hard for people like the person I used to be uh, to actually learn how to hate your sin without hating mm. yourself. So maybe this is, we'll work through these five lies, but you, you talked about side A and side B, and you can go there if you want and explain that for our listeners. But you've alluded to it several times that this book is 
It's trying to help Christians understand the middle ground that instinctively we want doesn't exist. If it ever if it ever did exist, Obergefell 2015, you know, eight years later, it's gone. And there's a certain, and sometimes it's commendable and understandable, but a certain instinct that says, if we can just kind of get around the the kindness flank, the niceness flank, and look, we don't have to get into the winsome wars. I think it's a fine word in a certain way, and it's right. a unhelpful word in other ways. Uh, I've used okay. It, it we understand, but your point is absolutely true. If we as Christians think, I can just I can kind of just hold lightly to this tether of, you know, marriage is a man and a woman, but I can cede as much other ground as possible because that will that will make the gospel more attractive. That will be the sort of welcome open door. I think in a lot of ways your book, uh, with appropriate bracing confrontation is telling people, brothers and sisters, that middle ground, if you're standing in it, you're probably not in it. You're over on the other side. Why do you feel uh, so strongly yeah, about Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say for sure that the Obergefell decision washed out that middle ground. I don't know if that middle ground existed, but I know I loved that middle ground for years. And I have at least two books that were written in that middle ground. And I wanted that middle ground to hold. But here's what I can tell you, that after the Obergefell decision, there was no social structure that allowed for the, the you know, the flood walls to stand up. So it, it doesn't exist. And that's why I'm concerned about all of these parachurch ministries that are targeting, uh, you know, um, uh, college Christians. If, if crew, RUF, InterVarsity, does not recognize that there is no middle ground, then they. I want them to know you are putting a lot of young Christians at risk. Mm -hmm. And from the material that I've read from all of these organizations, I don't think anybody's got a clue. And specifically, you just have to know what time it is, people. I mean, you and I were from the North, you know, you didn't get up right. in Michigan or in New York and put your, you know, your shorts on when it was 30 below zero, because that was stupid. So yeah, that's all I'm saying. Just know what time it is. Another way to put it is those three exchanges in Romans 1 have been codified into civil and federal law. Yeah, that's right. So that's important to know, too. We see an exchange of, um, of God for, uh, for the creature. We see an exchange of, of, of heterosexuality for homosexuality. Um, and we see an exchange of truth for lies. And one of the ways you see that is take something like the word immutability. You know, that is actually a word that we we consider to be an attribute of God. Right. But all of a sudden, it's used as an attribute of homosexuality. Well, as soon as an attribute of God becomes an attribute of man's sin, we see that we have an idol problem in our world. That's right. And one of the ways that that gets played out is you'll have people say, but look, I'm gay, I'm trans, I'm made in the image of God. And that really is a category confusion because you're made in the image of God as a man or a woman. We praise God for that. And we want you to grow in the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness of God. But trans and gay come from the world, the flesh and the devil. There's no such thing as being made in the image of God as a gay man. Doesn't exist. So let's go back to the, the college student. Say a college student stands up or says it to a group and, you know, would say to, to us, Kevin, Rosaria, 
Yeah, I agree. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I agree homosexual behavior is wrong. But our posture as the church, what we should lead with is we're very sorry. We've sinned against gay people. We've been guilty of the sin of homophobia. And don't we have more to repent of? Shouldn't we lead with all the ways over that the church has hurt so many people? And then maybe we'll have a hearing, but we have to, isn't that the way of Christ? Shouldn't the gospel, shouldn't we talk about our own sins first? I have my response. What would yours be? Yeah. You know, part of why I was able to publish in this book the entire dialogue that Ken Smith and I had, um, because he actually wrote it down, like he had a lecture for me. He just said, I'm going to give you a lecture, is I want people to see what happens when you have strong relationships and strong words. So in some ways, I am all about strong relationships. I am all about, you know, my dinner table is filled with, I dine with sinners and I read bad books all the time. I might have a new PhD in that. <laughs> but you lead with the truth. You lead with John 8, 31, 32. And if you have things to repent of, be sure to repent of them. But that's not your posture. And and having lived as a lesbian during a, an era of this world where we did not have civil rights of any kind, um, uh, and during the time of the AIDS epidemic, I will tell you for all of the uh, things that the church has done against gay people, you cannot compare it to the things that gay people have done to gay people. The, and I, I really mean that I'm using gay people and I shouldn't because I don't actually think that that is a category of personhood. But, um, you know, being a man in your 40s needing to live in depends because of the kind of sexual practice you've engaged in is absolutely horrific. Um, being a woman who is, um, you know, riddled with seizures now because of years of testosterone during your trans confusion is not a kindness. And having people say that all you need is a sticker and a parade to deal with these ensnares of the devil is like, that's barbaric. So um, I would say, no, don't start there and don't make it about you. Lead with the truth. Christ loves his created world and his created order. And there is no feeling so strong that God can't um, re, you know, reshape that through repentance unto life so that you can live in fullness and you will live in, a, in the fullness of Christ. Some of people will live as single people. Some people will live as married people. But a world that grows in homosexuality and transgenderism is a world condemned, yeah. not a world that's flourishing. I mean, and, and the, the whole moniker of pride should tell us something. It, it's it is tr- the whole world trying to convince itself that the exchange of the truth for a lie can be justified. Right. In fact, we need right. the whole world to throw us to throw a parade to convince ourselves. Right. Right. And right. I, I like what you said. You know, for the Christian out there, very sincere, who's maybe thinking, "Well, we got to lead with the church's sin and our sin of homophobia." That word has problems in itself. With all due respect, I. You know, I think 90% of the time that's a rhetorical posture more than it is a heartfelt repentance. I would want to say to that friend, what what sin are you uh, con- you know, confronting? Are you repenting of? I think of C.S. Lewis's famous essay, The Danger of National Repentance, where he was saying in his day in World War II, he's saying, 
If you want to repent broadly of a group's sin, let it be the sin that your particular age and your generation is guilty of. It's easy, so he was saying, it's easy to say we repent of imperialism in his day and all these things. He said, you never felt drawn to those things. Why don't you repent of not obeying your parents? Why don't you repent of your snobbery? That's what Lewis was saying. And in the same way, it's like the, you know, the old from Blue Like Jazz, you know, the, the college students who went and set up a confessional booth to apologize to people for the Crusades. That's pretty cheap repentance, quote unquote, because you're actually you're actually condemning other Christians for something they did. So lead with love by all means. And you're a model of this as much more than anyone with hospitality and love. But there's something different when we're talking about how we love versus can I just publicly repent of other people's sins? Right. Absolutely. And that actually, uh, Thomas Watson calls that counterfeit repentance. Yeah. So it, it actually is condemning you. Um, one of the experiences I've had, I wonder if you've had this, and I wonder if it'll come up at CrossCon. I have all kinds of students who come to me one by one, but they don't want me to talk to their group. Ah. And, um, and I've had you know young people say, I just don't think you're connecting with us anymore. And I'll say, no, I'm connecting. I'm connecting the way the spanking spoon once connected with your raw behind. <laughs> I, 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 I'm pretty confident right. I'm connecting with you. But you know what, what, and I think we have to like, think about what the end is in mind. And I think this is where it's really hard for evangelicals. Um, Ken Smith said to me recently, this is the 96-year-old pastor the Lord used in my conversion, who walked me down the aisle when I got married. Mm. Ken Smith said, you know, Rosaria, it's just hard to get evangelicals in a fighting mood. And he said yeah. this to me last month. And I'm like, you know, he still is like the prophet of my, of my world. But we have to realize that, you know, if the end in mind is actually liberating people from the snares of Satan, we've got to find our backbone. That's right. So you've already been talking about this. Anything more you want to say about lie number two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian? Uh, just just that you must lead with the truth. And um, and the the spiritual person, you know, that's the, you know, the anagram and, and you know, mm-hmm. that, that can, it is, um, one of the things I've seen from this, actually, I, I will tell you one of the consequences. If, if, if there's one Titus 2, you know, trope I've had in the last two months. It's having to say to young women, I think you need to fire your anti, your almost Christian feminist therapist and listen to your elders. Um, Because one of the things you get if you believe that paganism is kind is you get redefinitions of trauma and abuse. And you start to believe that you don't need to repent of sin because somebody sinned against you. Well, newsflash, you can be both a victim and a sinner at the same time. And most of us were. And with that language, you know, you said it earlier with the Burgerfeld, the redefinition of harm and abuse and trauma, and, and here's the, you know, my, my caveat, yes, abuse is a real thing, trauma is a real thing, but but the, the vocabulary has become so expansive and so ill-defined and ambiguous, and it's in, almost entirely upon the person's experience to define or to self-label. So what may be necessary discipline or may be run-of-the-mill sin that needs to be overlooked because it's a glory to overlook an offense. Everything is now received. This is why we have you know, mental health crisis. One of the reasons is because we don't know what to do with normal states of frustration, disappointment, 
hurt, or even understanding that sometimes we bring the hurt upon ourselves, or it's a necessary, uh, you know, sometimes you have to break the bone before you can reset it in place. How, how do you right. talk to people about this with all of the, you know, the, the necessary guardrails that people genuinely can be hurt and sinned against, and yet we're living in a time where just a lot of silliness, it seems to me. It, it is, and it's very dangerous for women. Uh, it's extremely dangerous for a woman to go around thinking that she's been traumatized um, when actually, you know, she's in an adulterous relationship and she needs to get out and repent and there's full forgiveness and repentance. So it's extremely dangerous and it's extremely dangerous for the church. I, I mean, as a as a pastor's wife for many decades, I will tell you that Satan's widest angle on your church is its most unhinged woman. So, and the way that women get unhinged right now is all of this kindness therapy. And so I spend a lot of time saying to young women, get a grip, get a grip. And how do they um, respond to that? Well, I do it one by one. You know, yeah. I think that you, if you have a strong relationship with a person, you can have strong words. Um, but I think we need to be willing to hear strong words because it's impossible. I mean, I know one woman who is truly, you know, like we had, we're, well, you know, churches are, are a mess. So our church is no different than anybody else's. But, you know, my husband's the pastor and he'll say, you know, so-and-so says she doesn't want to hear, you know, hard things from the word of God. She just wants a hug. And he's like, yeah, but if I gave her a hug, she'd say I sexually abused her. So I can't, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you can't win. So I think... I think, I think Titus too, I think we need mature women, and that's why I wrote this book, mature women, we need to take younger women under our wings and say, get a grip, have reasonable expectations, and, uh, and expect it to be hard. Hard isn't bad. That that's doesn't right. mean there's a problem. So, what, what advice do you give uh, for me as a pastor, for other pastors? Because I hear what you're saying, and I think, so as I preach God's word, I need to I need to preach it all. I need to preach the whole counsel of God. I need to apply it to men and women. I also think it would be unwise of me to say from the pulpit, young ladies, get a grip, because that lands on people in a different way. And uh, instinctively, I feel like there's a different way I should communicate. Is that, do you think that's pastors being sensitive to male-female dynamics, or are they too cowardly? Who can tell young women to get a grip? Is it is it is it 61-year-old women? Is it uh, I, I, everyone? Well, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think it can be everyone. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, Kevin, I'm 5'2", 115 pounds. Yeah. I don't think you can actually stand behind me. Like, I, I don't right, think right. I can protect you. We've been on a stage before. You're a, you're a, you're a big guy. You played basketball. And are you, are you so. frustrated by this? Are you frustrated? You look at the, the Presbyterian world. Does it feel like there's no. there are men who are, Rosaria, you go out in front and you say it and we'll get behind you? Well, I usually poke at the people who do that. And I say just what I just said to you. Yeah. So I don't, I don't mind it. I think, I think uh, this is a pretty, we're in a pretty scrappy place right now. But I think the word, the word of God equips everyone, especially preachers to preach it powerfully and well. And I would say you can do that with appropriate caveats and even, you know, with, um, uh, but but I think the weak link. I don't know, but I I can't. T I don't. I, I'm married to a pastor. I am so grateful to be married to a pastor. I can't tell you how I need daily biblical counseling, sometimes hourly. So you know you could pray for Kent and all that. But what I do what I do know is that there's a there's a 
the missing link, I would say, is the women of my generation. Mature women need to take younger women in Titus II fashion and say, value what is good. Love your husbands. Submit to your husbands. If you don't have a husband, desire to have a husband. That is a very good thing. Um, don't listen to what the church is. I mean, there's a particular way that the church is valorizing singleness and loneliness that is bizarre to me. It is so baffling to me. Um, and so don't be afraid to just give people, you know, be the grownups. The grownups need to enter the room and we need to enter the room of the church and the room of the podcast and the room of the school board and we just need to be the grown-ups entering the room now. And you know what? People are not going to be happy. Right. L- <laughs> let me mention uh, here, we're, I want to get to several other things. So let me mention these lies, three, four, and five. You can hit on all of them or pick which one you think would be most important. We've already touched on all of them. Lie number three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Lie number four, transgenderism is normal. And we really haven't talked about lie number five. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. Okay. Which one do you want to talk about? Well, I'm going to make the link between those three things. Yeah. Okay. The link is a feminist understanding that biological sex and cultural gender are separate and that they can operate in separate spheres and that you can create an identity based on your you know, your gifts, your cultural understanding of yourself that is separate from your biological sex. So that is the, the, the theoretical foundation of feminism because feminism ultimately needed to find a go around for a woman's creational hmm. potential, right? These, you know, the men and babies are the problem, Kevin. And so right. they had, to, we've got to find some way of dealing, you know. I've been a uh, big problem maker. <laughs> you have been a nine. Yeah, 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 you definitely. And praise God for that. Um, uh, you know, I think a, a wonderful book is by Christopher Gordon, The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. Mm. You probably, but you know, one of the things that he says in here that is very helpful to me as I think through how to connect these three things is, um, Uh, You know, God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of God. To introduce gender as a new category of personhood, separate from the biological category of sex, in pursuit of a different sexual identity, Mm. or even in pursuit of a career. Okay? Um, He didn't say, I said that part. Is unnatural to the creation order and harmful to the purposes for which God made us. So um, yeah, feminism is, uh, it is a lie that feminism is good for the church and the world. The, 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 the useful uh, you know, uh, additions from the first wave of feminism, right to vote, right to education, are actually part of the gospel anyway. You didn't need feminism to get there, in my opinion. Um, but what you see is, what you, what you actually see in this insistence that, um, that culture is separate gender is separate from sex, is the end of feminism. Because um, feminism ultimately takes aim against biblical patriarchy. And you might notice that um, the kind of patriarchy you're dealing with today is not biblical, it's men in dresses. It's transgender patriarchy. And so in some ways, I think women just have to figure it out. Like, what do you want? 
Do you want godly men in charge or do you want drag queen story hour in charge? Because you're given a picture right now, a pretty clear picture of what your options look like. So to rail against the creation ordinance, which is a feminist watchword, has resulted in a world where in the world, feminism is dead. Transgenderism killed it. Look at Title IX. Look at schools. Look at J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Look at J.K. Rowling. Yeah, the only place, the only place feminism is, is alive and well is in the squishy, soft, broad evangelical church, hmm. which simply simply proves that broad evangelicalism is not leading the world. It's just in a 10k race, you know, a couple of miles behind. And exhibitionism is in there because you know part of the whole cultural mandate was use your gifts. I can't tell you how many people have told me, but you're you're such a good public speaker. Have you never been called to preach? No, I've I've sinned in so many other ways. I don't need to sin <laughs> in that way. That Thank way. you very much. You know, I, um, yeah. So so um, so no. Uh, you know, this idea exhibitionism is simply an idea that you would, you know, exhibitionism is the replacement of modesty, and it's the idea that you need to run with your gifts. No, you need to run with the God's created order and what His purposes are. It, it is fascinating and tragic the ways in which modern or third wave or whatever wave we're on, sex positive feminism, all of that in a kind of uh, you know horseshoe comes around to various show what would have been called chauvinist ideas. So I, I saw from some left leaning corporation or group I don't remember they referred to women as bleeding persons. I mean, can you imagine the what derogatory terms or the sex positive feminists that you know you I won't even say the the sort of slogans that they say, but they they involve we should be able to not wear our shirts, we should be able to show whatever we want all the time. You you know who used to like that? <laughs> A lot exactly. of men. Exactly. Right. These right. are not ideas that bring true freedom to women. No, absolutely. And again, if you happen to just have nothing to do on a Thursday night and want to come to a Durham County School Board meeting, you know, the people who are talking are the men in dresses. Hmm. So, I, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty clear problem out there. But again, what, you know, one more thing I'd like to say about all of this, especially on the transgender issue, you know, um, the, a, a secular conservative perspective, which you see at writ large in the you know school board and the legislature, yeah. are very happy to hold up pictures of like women who have had mastectomies, fourteen-year-old mm-hmm. boys who have been castrated, um, and of course these are supposed to be glamour pictures, and they're holding them up as like just examples of what not to be. And I just want to remind all of us that we need Christians to show up in these spaces because. We don't throw people away. We don't hold up a picture of a mangled body and say, see, see, example of what not to be. We say, behold your Lord who um, will resurrect your body, you who repent of your sin and commit your life to him so that you cannot mock him, even if you did when you were 14. The saddest person in the world I've ever met is the father of the of the 14-year-old son who thought castrating his son was a good idea. Mm. He needs the gospel. Gospel, that's right. 
Do, do you have time to go past an hour? I just sure a little do. Bit? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I have some more questions I want to talk about. I do want to mention from Desiring God, they also sponsor Lifebooks and Everything, and mentioning today, Don't Waste Your Life, 20th anniversary. Can you believe that this sermon and book now has been out for 20 years? So you can get a copy from our friends at Westminster Bookstore today. If you haven't read it, and now, you know, I was growing up when this sermon happened or out of college. Now I need to give it to my college students. So don't waste your life published by Crossway, but desiring God. So thank you. A a couple of very practical things I want to talk to you about from your book. So here's one of them, which is very provocative. And, uh, and I agree with you. And it's easy for me to say, I've thought this for a long time. You won't know if it's true or not, but, but I, but I have, and uh, you're, you're helping me now to to bring it out. But you give this very countercultural, the whole book's countercultural, but this is even countercultural for for Christians. You question the whole idea of coming out of the closet. So I think for many Christians, the idea has been you live with this shame, you need to okay, you're 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 not going to, you know, embrace your homosexuality. But you need to come out, you need to share it with others, you need to uh, embrace it because other people will help you and it will be an example. And I've often thought, we need someone, maybe Rosaria, when you don't get canceled for this book, your next book, uh, I even have the title for you, uh, (laughs) Stigma Speaks Louder Than Dogma, or something to that effect. Because I think Christians, we don't know... We just think stigma is a bad thing, and it can be, but stigma is also a good thing. There are all sorts of stigma. Racism is a huge stigma. So whereas it used to be, we may get to heaven, and well, we won't find out because it it won't matter in heaven, but if we did, we might find out some great heroes from the past were, quote, struggled with same-sex attraction, and never, and you say, you know what? Do share with a close friend, share with a group of people who can pray for you. It's not that you have to have this sin struggle alone, but you're questioning the the impulse that says, you know what, I should really tell my whole church, I should tell everyone, and this should be a part of my identity. Should yeah. anyone do that, or no. what's the danger there? <laughs> no, and I should have written the first book in a pseudonym too. But um, because I, you've now you've you've shared that, but but you right. share it as something in the past, right? Which is which it, is that's different. very different in the past, many many years in the past. Um, but no, I, I think for two things. First of all, we as Christians do value modesty, which means we value privacy. Things that happen in privacy are, are valued, friendships, um, intimate conversations, things that, but, but we live in a world where everything is blogged about and tweeted about, and we are just, we are, we're such exhibitionists, we can't get anything done in privacy. So, so um, but the other is, I think when I said that, and the gay Christians, you know, got very upset with me, you really saw why, because they really are proud of their homosexuality. Their, their homosexuality is a mark of achievement. Uh, they, 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 um, they don't want to repent of it. Uh, they, and, and, I, and I can give you examples. If I'm speaking too generally or even harshly right now, I, I, can, I can explain what because I mean. Because some, some would, would you agree? There are some who have identified <laughs> as having same-sex attraction well, let's who take- want to repent of it. 
Yes, yes. But let yes. me give some examples. Let's take somebody sure. like Wes Hill, who says, I don't, I don't need to repent of my homosexuality because this is how God made me. Right. I need to sublimate it and use it to the glory of God. And, um, and furthermore, we all need to come out of the closet because we are the new we are the gentiles of the new church we are that we we gay people quote unquote are the gentiles coming into the kingdom and so in some ways when i said that i provoked mm -hmm. people like wes hill and nate collins and greg johnson yes. to show that actually what they don't want to do is repent of a sin and they don't want to repent of a sin because, uh, well, I don't know why. I can't. I can't speak for them. But here's what I can say. Um, and again, just quoting Thomas Watson: If you don't repent of sin, then you aren't a Christian. I mean, I, let me say that really clearly. I can't read your heart, but I can read your books. And if you coddle your sin and say, well. This is the no-fly zone. You can't touch me here. It's not a sin. I'm not having sex. No, but desire is an action. The Westminster Confession of Faith makes it a helpful distinction between an unchosen sin and the motion of our sinful heart. It says both are sin, all the motions thereof. And if I can, if I can say that, I think the PCA Sexuality Study Report did a did a good job on this. I know other denominations have done reports too. I was a part of that one, but I think it it we stated very clearly that we don't, as Protestants, hold to the Roman Catholic view of concupiscence, that you have this kind of tinderbox of the heart, and it only becomes sin when you give knowing, volitionary assent to it, even the motions thereof of sin. Some I've, I've put it like this, and maybe I got it from someone else, I don't remember. Is homosexuality gift, disability, or sin? So for some people, it's it's a it's a gift. Okay, I'm not going to act on it, but it's a it's a gift to the world. It's a gift to show the you know obedience to Christ. Or is it a disability? It's like uh, you know some people have dyslexia, some people have a, a, a limp, or is it a sin? Because that puts it in the category of something that can be repented, needs to be repented of, and also here's the good news that can be changed. Maybe right. not fully in this life, maybe not right. quickly, but God gives no promise that he heals broken bones. He does give a promise to change us from one degree of glory to the next to become more like Christ and put our sins to death and live in him. Right. And, and I would say one, one other thing. We would hear about more people who had struggled against homosexual desires repented, grew in the grace of God, are now biblically married, have a bunch of kids, are very happy. We would hear about that if we didn't have such condemnation around that. So I talk privately with a boatload of people from that situation. Um, and and I, I would say, I mean, because we do believe in, we do believe that concupiscence, we do believe that sin is sin and that we must repent of it whether we, uh, you know, uh, you know, chose the form of of, of uh, original sin that Adam thumbprinted on us. But I would say something mm -hmm. else too, and that is has to do with this this cultural momentum that says people don't change, change is impossible. You know, I don't know anybody biblically married who isn't a sinner. I, I, I've been a pastor's wife for a while. I just don't know anybody biblically married who didn't come into their marriage with some indwelling sin that needed to be dealt with. 
And I want to just challenge people to understand that the indwelling sin of an unchosen homosexual desire is actually no different. It's God can handle that and God can handle that and bless your marriage. I, I want to share one other thing, and that is the disability camp um, is very quickly becoming the side A, let's get married. Um, and someone very dear to me, very dear to me from that camp, someone who would, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that because she probably doesn't want me to say anything that would, would, would make it known who she is. But she came to me not so recently and said, Rosaria, it makes me really sad. So she's now quote unquote, you know, gay married and part of a gay activist church. And she said, Rosaria, it makes me really sad that one of us is going to hell. And I thought, well, it does make me sad, but I'm just really curious. Why do you think I'm yeah, which, going to hell? Yeah, which one? Think I'm, yeah, which one? And why do you think I'm going to hell? And she said, well, because you lay heavy burdens on the necks of gay people by asking them to repent of a sin that isn't a sin. And I realized when she said that, that the real, the real area that Christians need to move into is the area of anthropology. If you believe there is such a thing as a gay person, you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe Genesis 127. You don't believe the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. And you don't actually believe that you need to love your enemies. You just, need to th- you, just think you need to pretend your enemies are your friends. So and I so agree, I agree with that. I agree with you. Let let me push for some clarification because I could hear somebody would say, "What do you mean, gay people? My my daughter, my right. son came out. He he's gay. Right. That's what he that's what he is." Right. Uh, so you're you're not denying the existence of people right. who do who have homosexual experiences or feelings. Right. You're right. saying something of about which identity. I was one. <laughs> that's right. right. So what I, do you mean, a gay not, person? Yeah, not identity. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, that's, that's something we could talk about. I'm talking yeah. about anthropology. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about ontology. I'm talking about personhood and image bearing. God did not create anyone to be gay. Right. God created male and female, Genesis 1, 27, 28, for a procreative purpose. And God doesn't create a um, a a. a I mean, you talk about in your wonderful book, Patterns That Preach, mm. right? Patterns are purposeful. They, they, they aren't just there as a museum piece. And so there is no bearing the image of God as a gay person. So that I'm talking about anthropology, not, not phenomenology or lived right. reality. But this is going to be the terrain the church has to deal with. And let me get back to our parachurch ministries on college campuses, because I, you know, there are people who who flee from those and they show up at the Butterfields and uh, and they share what's going on. And then we say, why don't you invite that person to church? And they say, well, our, you know, so-and-so director says, don't ever bring so-and-so to the Butterfields. You know, why? they, They might change. You know, that you might actually hear the gospel. I'm telling you, it, it could happen if you've got ears to hear. So uh, anthropology, biblical anthropology is the, hmm. uh, that is the war zone right now. And uh, campus ministries better wake up. This is not That's 1999. True. This is 2023. And Satan is all over you and all over your people. And uh, I'm watching. That's right, and, and God's watching, and God's and, more importantly, yes. And and if if there are people 
writing books, doing ministries on apologetics, cultural apologetics, and you're not talking about this, you can talk about evolution matters. You can talk about scientism. You can talk about atheism. You can talk about and all you know evidences for the resurrection. We need all of that. And it, but if you are not talking about anthropology, sex, gender, marriage, you are not talking about the number one objection to Christianity and the number one area in which thinking like a true Christian is going to come completely at odds with the way of our world, which is the way it was in the first century. Kyle Harper's important book on the, you know, he doesn't call it this, but really the the first sexual revolution in late Roman antiquity, as Christianity took hundreds of years, their sexual ethic was from the very beginning very different. And it was one of the things in becoming a Christian— Almost, you know, one of the most important things you had to count the cost was I am coming into a world and an organization called the church and a that has a very different view of sex, marriage, gender. And that's the world that we inhabit now. And if especially college students, because the older you are, we kind of have some cultural memory of the way things were. And that allows you to sort of, well, the world's mad. And you kind of remember it wasn't always this crazy. But if you've just grown up in crazy, you need a whole lot of intentional discipleship to help you not be crazy because you're crazier than you think. Right. And that means that the church needs to not just talk about what it believes in, but it needs to say what it defies. Mm -hmm. And it needs to help other people see those boundaries. And please don't think that um, young people who are not struggling with homosexuality are not affected by this. I do a lot, I talk to a lot of young people and there are a lot of young women who actually also are under this kind of delusion that in order to be biblically married, I need to be wowed by my spouse. No, you need, use God's pattern for your godly marriage and don't listen to the lies that the world and the church sometimes and specifically yeah. the parachurch i mean let me say this is the other thing and i you know you and i know this because we we know these things um you are a pastor i am married to a pastor in our denomination our pastors take a vow to die for the biblical doctrine mm. um you are not a hireling kent butterfield is not a hireling people think i'm bold you should hear the preaching i sit under and <laughs> you know i listen to your Amen. sermon yeah. so i know you know i know what good preaching is um parachurch ministries are not are not run i'm sorry they are not run by men who offered to die for the doctrine um and this is a particular moment in history when hirelings are really being tossed to and fro so be careful be careful christian love your church more than your parachurch hmm. and flee and, to it and let us not be led by any hirelings or any good people out there in the parachurch let it not be so of you let me ask you two let me talk about two I have time for two other things one i think this is really important and you hit on this you quote this therapist talking to someone about transgender daughter, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? Now, you have had this thrown at you. I have had it thrown at me. We've had it thrown at 
our our church and our school for standing for biblical sexuality. And it goes all the way back to the 70s and 80s. It, it has been part of the strategy in the sexual revolution from the very beginning. And I think it's the hardest on a visceral level for Christians to know how to respond to, because it goes like this, whether it's homosexuality or now transgenderism. uh, But do you understand that if the way you think and the things you're saying are going to lead people like me to self-harm or my friends are going to commit suicide and, and Christians or just human beings don't know what to do. Okay. The last thing I want is to, is to have someone's tragic death, that blood on my hands. And so the instinct there is to recoil. Okay, I'll back way up. I can't talk about any of this because you're about to commit self-harm or the people you know. And so I guess uh, I guess we'll just have to go underground with this whole conversation. I think that very practically is one of the biggest defeaters. And how do you how do you address it? I have two answers to that. Um, if I'm speaking to the church and I have like a mom coming to me and saying, "This is what my daughter's saying," and I'll say, right. "Yeah, blackmail's hard, isn't it?" First of all, that's uh-huh. blackmail, and you know, I just yeah, it's very hard. It's hard when you know when when you're when somebody's trying to blackmail you, but. Um, no, the the Bible says cut off your evil desires, not cut off your testicles. You know, seriously, you're, you're not supposed to cut off your body parts. You're supposed to cut. You are supposed to cut something off because the sin of transgenderism kills sin, not yourself. Is the sin of transgenderism yeah. is the sin of envy, the sin of covetousness. These are really serious things. But when I'm before the legislature and I have you know equality North Carolina in my face and the cameras rolling, I quote. Uh, the American Psychological Association that says in 73% of the times, gender anxiety among children is restored naturally by natal Mm -hmm. puberty if Mm -hmm. social transitioning, hormone blockers, and surgery is not introduced. And then I remind them the APA is a pretty liberal organization. I only quote it when I have to talk to people like you. Okay, my numbers are bigger, but I'm going to scare you anyway. How do you account for that? Right. And then they cry. And I'm not kidding you. Hmm. I mean, you know, because you get your three minutes at the microphone. We had this at the last school board meeting. The woman who came behind me just literally stood up at the microphone and screamed. Um, And afterwards, I went up to her and I gave her my phone number. I said, I am so sorry. I obviously hurt you very much, and I don't mean to, but I can't understand a word you said. She did say she was a a licensed Durham school teacher. That should give everybody excitement about sending your kids to the public schools. But anyway, um, I I gave her my phone number. I said, if you would like to come and just tell me what's going on, I'll meet you. But you just have to use your words, and I want to hear what's on your heart. Got back in the car. My 20-year-old son was with me, and he said, Mom, the last time you told me to use my words, I was four. (laughs) <laughs> Use your words, yeah. Do you see? So what I'm saying again: don't be afraid to answer people's questions, Church. They need to hear that. They need yeah, to hear I'm, that there's an argument to be made. And one of the other, you don't need the Bible to make this argument, is the the various studies in other countries, which are, by yes. all accounts, even more permissive 
the, these rates of, of suicide and anxiety and self-harm, they don't go down. Right. So it, it, it can't simply be attributed to cultural pressure. Right. And you have the very common sense argument. Why are these things happening when this country has never been more permissive, right. more celebratory right. of these things than it is right now? And yeah. yet now you're telling me it's an absolute crisis and epidemic. Right. It's of course, right. th- this is where it's so hard for Christians because Christians, we, we want to care. We want to be compassionate. Let's be honest. We also want to make sure people see us as caring and compassionate. And that sometimes is, is more of the motivation, but we have to have just the, the, the common sense and the calmness with this particular rejoinder to say you, your brother, or, or not brother or sister, but friend, uh, your threat of what you might do to yourself or others is is according to your own human agency and your own volition. Absolutely. I, do, I, I am not encouraging that. In fact, right. I would be happy to give you all the counsel that you need to discourage you from that, right. but you cannot lay that at the feet right. of other people's beliefs and views. And here's why Christians need to be in the public sphere with an absolute, not going to be blackmailed, here's the truth, not buying it, no way. Because again, you have conservative legislators who will write to Rosaria or Kevin and say, do you know any detransitioner who will come and share their sad story? I know a lot of them and you're not getting their phone numbers. And here's why. The same mental health issues that caused them to want to harm their body didn't go away because they did. So you're not getting them, you're getting me. And that's all there is to it. And so Christians need to be willing to protect the people who are in harm's way around this conversation. And it's not the activists. Mm, that's right. <laughs> and, and so I, mean, I would say to that end, my husband has now preached three sermons on why transgenderism is a sin. And we have people in our church who had been trapped in that who would say things like, I wish that I heard this sermon when I was in the seventh grade. Mm. And, you know, so again, I'm, it's, here we are. Christians need to get right up to the microphone and say, okay, bring it on, bring it on. What, what's your question? Okay. Here's a Kleenex. Let's stay with it. Use your (laughs) words. (laughs) Use your words. Use your words. So let, let's let's end here. You've already been talking about it, but uh, again, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, wonderful book. The afterword is really, really good, and some people will, will want to go right to the afterword or consult it because it's really practical, and you get to, uh, and we don't have time to get into it, but you have some great, great responses, some principles to apply as you seek to accept without approving your prodigal. So that's where many parents and grandparents are. You also go through with just helpful, a paragraph or two. Some of these things don't need a whole book. They need just a wise two paragraphs. Should I attend the gay wedding of my son? My daughter and her lesbian partner are having a baby by artificial insemination. Should I go to the 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 birthday celebration? Uh, my son and, quote, husband want to come home for, for Christmas, but my other kids don't want to. Watch all these very practical questions. Uh, so consult the afterword. But the general theme of this afterword, and it's throughout this whole book, and it's been a part of our conversation. So I'll, I'll give you the last word on this topic. How do we as Christians do what you say right here, and that is to find the difference between acceptance and approval. 
Mm-hmm. That's well, where so many people are because we know people we love who are enmeshed in these sins. Right. What's the difference and how do we apply it? Right, right, right. You know, that was one of the first conversations Ken Smith had with me, you know, many decades ago. Rosaria, I can accept you as a lesbian. I just don't approve. Right. I can see you're in front of me. I accept that you exist. And I accept that you're, yes. You're not a blank slate. You have reasons for why you are where you are. You're a person with feelings and thoughts and a person worth getting to know and talk to and Though Absolutely. this element is not God's image in you, you are an image bearer. All those things are right. under All those the things. umbrella of acceptance. All those things. Um, but per- part of why this is so important is because children are trying to blackmail their parents using the law of the land and the um, the, the the satanic you know churches that are that have you know I mean all of that and and I think one of the things that we need to realize and it's it's you know Proverbs I think 29 the the fear of man is a snare and the fear of the Lord is safe so parents don't fear your child it's a snare a snare is an it's an instrument of execution from which you can't extract yourself so don't fear your child um, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is pure. It's it clean. Is, it is clean. Yes. And and it um and so those I have two appendices in the back. One is how to read the word of God, and one is how to deal with your prodigal, and they go together. They go together. And I'm so glad all the pushback I get from this book, ultimately the biggest is like, well, she thinks the word of God is the word of Christ. She, you know, and, and I'm so glad. I'm like, thank you. Thank you, Miss, you know, egalitarian for arriving at that conclusion. That's right. What we're really disagreeing about is how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then our disagreements about women and men and homosexuality and transgenderism, that all comes downstream from how to read the Bible. But what I tell parents all the time is you get to be sanctified in your ignorance. Okay. Mm-hmm. You do, you need to be, you, you need to be, um, you don't need to have a PhD in queer theory. And in fact, I strongly recommend that you don't. You don't. That's not going to be don't. helpful for you. Yeah, and, yep. That's and, and, not and the answer to helping your daughter. No. It is not. You can be sanctified in your ignorance. You can see if your daughter has a new gender pronoun, you, she better define it for you because she's in a rough spot because we only have 26 letters to describe 78 realities, apparently. That's tough. Um, so you can let, you can, you need to be sanctified in the word of God, the pure, Word of God, but each of those, uh, th- uh, uh, you know, questions that parents ask me are repeated questions. I didn't put anything in that appendix that I haven't yeah. been asked, you know, more times than I have fingers and toes. So hopefully that will be helpful to people. Um, the Word of God is your guide. Be in a good church. Be faithful in a church. Um, you know, repent of your own sin, but don't be beleaguered by what the world calls a That's sin right. the world we're in an upside down world we're in a world where the the codifications of romans one have now been you know you know in law of the land so you know know what's right and stay there and surround yourself with a pastor who can really help you in that way that's a great place to end because it's so clear in your book and I, and it and it it's a real note of hopefulness these are it's easy to see these are dark times these are confusing times and yet in that little closing monologue and shot throughout your book is this realization, you know what, in the deepest level, it's not new. And the answers are are not revolutionary. 
believe the word of Christ, mm-hmm. worship mm-hmm. Christ, be in a mm-hmm. good church, pray, be surrounded by good influences, grow in godly wisdom, repent of your sins. So just to, to the people out there who, and everyone, you know, we all know people we love who are mm-hmm. who are struggling with these sins. You don't have to get a PhD in these things. It, please don't. Please you don't. do need to be a growing, godly, courageous Christian. And uh, that's why I so strongly commend this book. I was glad to write the foreword for it. Thank you, Rosaria. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kevin. Lord bless you. Thank you for listening to Life and Books and Everything, a ministry of Clearly Reformed. You can get episodes like this and many other resources at clearlyreformed.org. Until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. Mm